This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Hebrews chapter 10. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can look there in the New Testament book. Um, all right, I'll just go ahead. and It's the elephant in the room. I've already been asked. I've been tallying up. It's up to like almost 2020 right now. The question has been, why weren't a tie? <laughs> and it was so I could tally up how many people asked why you weren't a tie. So there's no wedding today. Uh, there's not a funeral this evening. Um, I, the shirt looked really bright, and I thought I would break it up and put a tie on it. And that's number 21. So, so I have categorizations of that. You know, there's the you look great, which is the subtle thing of I wish you'd wear a tie every week. I get that, Deborah. I get it. But this is a rent to own. I got to have it back by one. Uh, so, uh, you know, we can't do that all the time. But uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me? In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse eight continues. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So, As this big, long passage I've read today is just the next section of the book of Hebrews as we're working through, everything is building upon what has been preached prior. We have already talked about the Old Testament and the law and the covenant and how the blood sacrifice is insufficient but necessary in that old law and that old covenant as a precursor to that which was to come. And the Hebrew listeners, the first century church that received this letter, those who are defined under the descriptor as Hebrews, meaning Jewish people who have come to know the Lord and joined the church, but now in their fear are struggling with whether they have made the right decision 
are questioning things. I don't know if you've ever, anybody here stay up late at night wondering if that thing you said 13 years ago at six in the morning was the right thing to say? You know, that's the kind of worry some people have. And you're just kind of anxious about that. Well, the Hebrews had a much more realistic worry because the persecution upon them, not only as Jewish people, but now as the church, as Christians in a non-Christian world and in a world where the Jews are definitely uh, perpetually and consistently had been persecuted by those surrounding them. So they've got like a, a one-two punch ahead on them. They got the, the Jewish uh, persecution, they have the Christian persecution, and so they're going, oh my goodness, should we just uh, step back out of one and just be persecuted only for being Jews? The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, you didn't make a wrong decision by surrendering your life to Christ and joining the church, and let me help explain that to you, and therefore what he does for the previous 10 chapters up to where we are now is he is telling the history and connecting the dots from the Old Testament law to the New Testament covenant, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, the law and grace and all of that so that those that are hearing this can be encouraged and be strengthened to know that the Christ they claim to worship is worth it, and that the price that he paid was for all, and that he is ultimately the priest who is the king. I know all that is from previous chapters, but it builds up to this today, because this one section, if you just get this passage today, it just feels like it's a, like a word salad. You know, you're just looking at this, what, what is going on here? I was listening to Dr. Albert Moeller teach on this, actually, not too long ago. In one of his recordings on this, he, he shares an illustration that I thought, well, it really impacted me. It just, it just, it was so interesting to me. It may not be interesting to any of you, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. The University of Chicago, by the way, we'll have, where is that? See, it's always good to have one answer right, right? So it's in Chicago and it is a university. See, it's interactive, we're good today. University in Chicago is a renowned university, and, and yet I did not know that it was founded as a Baptist university. So long ago it was. And one of the, the main uh, contributors financially to the university at one point in its history was a guy named Rockefeller. You may have heard of him. Rockefeller, I'll call him John, <laughs> John D., was a Baptist. And so, that may be a shock to some of you as well. So there we are. This Baptist man with a lot of Baptist dollars gave Baptist dollars to a Baptist school to build at the campus a chapel. So now at the University of Chicago is the Rockefeller Memorial Chapel. It's been there for a long time and it has been built in the architecture of a Gothic architectural structure to look much like a cathedral. And so it is initially it doesn't take much logic to figure this out. If a guy who claims to be a Baptist is donating money for a chapel building at a university that at one point was Baptist, then the intent would be for the chapel to be used for Christian worship. But as years go by and leadership changes and philosophies shift and worldviews get clouded, the University of Chicago would be now defined as as far from a Baptist university as you could, you could be. Thus, the chapel that has Rockefeller Memorial on the placard there at the building on the, on the campus is as far from a Christian place of worship as you can have. It is now defined as, and you can Google it, you can look at it on its website, it is an interfaith chapel. Now, 
uh, I'm, I'm not just really super angry about this, but I just find it interesting. So let me tell you about this, because it's a chapel, it's just a building, right? But it had an intent. Now, as I read about this, and I heard Dr. Moeller talk about this, it brought to mind some of the chapels and the buildings that we have visited on our mission trips with our partner in missions at Lingue Christi, John Robinson, over in Wales and throughout Europe. We have gone into these buildings, and uh, they're beautiful. The architecture is wonderful. I mean, I, we've walked in there. Some of them are, uh, would be defined in the certain, wherever the cities are, uh, either Anglican. There are maybe a few Catholic ones there, mostly Anglican. And then there are Presbyterian ones, and there are Baptist ones, and there are Methodist ones. And then there are the majority of the churches and the buildings are what we would define as former churches. They're now just buildings, right? And, and so those that are just the facilities, in fact, there's one in the town, in the, in the, in the, uh, the city that we go to, uh, where we do our mission work in Carnarvon, that has been converted into a preschool play area. So uh, with, with whales, with the, the, the red dragon on its flag, you've got this cartoon dragon there at the front door of the old chapel there at the building. I've not been inside it, but I can imagine what's in it. There are others throughout England and Scotland and throughout Europe, really, that have been converted from places of worship to uh, anything else that anybody has money to buy. As long as the building is not on the historical registry, it is available for sale. And in certain of these old buildings, everything is on a registry. Like there's a, there's a podium, a pulpit in one of the churches that has an engraving of an old evangelist on the front. Well, the engraving is on the registry. So even in that current church that we work with, they can't remove the engraving. The pastor, he says, that's a reminder of our idolatry. We can't remove it. It's on the list. The pews in certain buildings can't be removed because they're on certain lists. But in some of these places, they're not on the list. And so in many of these places, these buildings have been converted into uh, uh, fitness centers, uh, into pubs, into restaurants, and sometimes even into individual homes. So you have that as a setup. Now, if you go back to the cathedral layout that you see in Chicago at this one, I like what, um, what Dr. Moeller says about this. He says that the chapel in Chicago has been stripped of every vestige of Christianity that could or was there. Meaning, there are no crosses in the building. If they could find them, they removed them. There are no biblical statements anymore. If they have been removable, they're removed. Any of the stained glass that may have had a cross or a dove or a Christ figure in that has been clouded over and removed. And so what has happened by an intent of those trying to make sure that an interfaith chapel is available for those of all or no faith, they have removed anything within the building that has defined it to be Christian because that could be offensive, right? And yet, if you were to fly over the chapel, you would notice that the architecture of the building is built in a very unique and copied from the ancient cathedrals. In fact, it's not any different than how Grace Episcopal Church is built here in Orange Park or Grace Anglican was built there in Fleming Island or some of our other Episcopal churches and those here in the city of Jacksonville. If you fly high enough and look down or send a drone up, you'll notice that the building is designed in a shape of a cross. So by trying to remove anything that says Christianity on it, they would have to tear the entire facility down in order to remove certain the wings of the cross and, the, and this portion of it because from the top, it looks like this very intentionally. Now, I like what he said. He said, the architecture says what the folks in Chicago have done their best not to say. It reveals the cross just by the footprint of the building. 
However, that does not make the building holy, just in case you're confused. That does not make the building holy, but it does reveal and does declare something about the intent from the builders and the designers. Now our architecture here in Orange Park says some things as well. In our room here today, we have the pulpit standing. You look at this and you would think, well this is in the front of the room, but if you actually look at the size of the building from the very back to there, it's almost in the center of the room. It's a little off-centered, but it's closer to the center than the front when you go all the way back. So what this says, and, and this is architecture says things, right? So I'm not saying the old stuff's always better than the new stuff, but, but what I've got here, because I've preached behind uh, tables and I've, and I've used music stands, I've, but, but by the pulpit sitting here where it is today, it is a, it's almost like a silent declaration to say that here in this building, our intent is to hold up, as we place, the word of God in a very central location Meaning, not just it's a good place to put a Bible, but symbolically it tells us that the Word of God is central to our worship, as God is center of our worship, but the Word declares that. We go to the Word of God to understand that. You'll also notice that here we have a baptistry, even though we didn't baptize anybody today, it is behind me, and you can still see the little bit of the water kind of trickling there at the bottom of that, and, um, and, and that is just a reminder to us of the ordinance of baptism, even though we don't have one scheduled today, and these are good, and yet we are not sacramental in that regard, and therefore we know that we are not constrained by our buildings, and thus, when we even had satellite campuses meeting in elementary school cafeterias and the YMCA, and we converted some things, we have church plants that do that as well, we are declaring there's something unique about the building that when the church is gathered in it, it says something. So we're just trying to be overt about this. And, and when we convert a building to a place of worship, it's not because we put up curtains or had a portable podium or anything like that, but because we, the people of God, gathered for worship to study the word in a place we have become and are the church. Which also tells you that if you're by yourself on the boat on Sunday morning fishing, you're not the church. You're just a Christian who's chosen not to attend the local church. It says something. We have friends in China who worship in caves. I've been to those worship services. Those are unique and different, but the Spirit of God is present in that place. We have stories throughout the world of gatherings that meet in homes, as mostly they did in the New Testament. We have stories of believers, brothers and sisters, we will celebrate and worship with in heaven one of these days that are now gathering in secret. Some are meeting in coffee shops, some are meeting in the back rooms and restaurants, and some are meeting in converted facilities. And all of that is happening even now. And that is church. And that is good and it is godly. So our buildings are not the church. And I, the pastor, am not your priest. Words matter. And it matters not just to our health, but it matters so that we are wise enough to know who we are and why we do what we do. Because as we gather here today and have walked in and found our seat on a cushioned pew in an air-conditioned facility with carpeted floors and empty crosses on display, with musicians leading us today to sing with them, there is an ex expectation when you come in. There is an expectation of something, and that's something that has become normative for us in our understanding of what worship is. So in this way, we have a normal routine of expected worship. 
when you look at the first century and you look at the Hebrews, they too had a routine. They had things they were looking for, but they also had something that they used to do that was no longer part of their worship. And they were struggling with that. So when you came in here today, I don't think anybody expected to see me wearing priestly garb or a tie, but you also didn't expect me to, to show up with a sharp blade in my hand, with an animal tied to the side, and an altar here so that I could kill the animal and have the blood drip all over the sides of it. You didn't expect that today, because that's not what we do today, because that would be foreign to our concept of worship, and it would be a, probably cause a lot of gasp, and some would leave, an offense. But it is normative, or at least was normative, for the people of God under the Old Covenant. And it was what the Hebrew believers in the first century knew, and it's what their ancestors had done for many years, and, their, and how expectations drive worship at times. So we have the, the questions of why and how today. Thus, we look at this Holy, Inspi- Holy Spirit-inspired book that God has given us and what the writer is saying. And he reminds us about Christ being the king and the prophet and the priest and what that means. Three things today. Won't be long, but hopefully clear. We're going to talk about the shadow. We're going to talk about the substance. We're going to talk about the seat. So let's look at the shadow. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So why bring up all that architecture in the University of Chicago? Because that is not what's happening for them in that chapel today, but it is a shadow of what used to happen and what could happen. It is a descriptor of something, but it is not there. When you look at the Old Testament law, you are told here by the writer that the law is but a shadow of the good things to come. It is not to our advantage to only read Matthew through Revelation. Read the Genesis through Malachi as well. And read it with an eye on where is Christ in all of this and where, how is the gospel revealed, even in the book of Numbers and Leviticus and all of that. You, you really can't, as we're doing the book of Hebrews, we're also looking back at the book of Leviticus often and not just Leviticus. Because the book of Hebrews, apart from the Old Testament, is going to not feel full. There's going to be some missing elements. There is an expectation that those that are reading and understanding and getting this letter sent to them, these Hebrew believers, already know what we have to do a little more time studying, and that's that Old Testament covenant law. But the law itself is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And it is made clear through these verses that the law is but a shadow of Christ. The law is a shadow of Christ. The sacrificial system was a type or a picture or an illustration of the work that Jesus would accomplish on the cross. So why am I not sacrificing an animal here today? Don't need to. Why do we not see the Old Testament ritual still in place for the church today? Because it is unnecessary. It is but a shadow of that which was to come. Therefore, like a shadow only exists when the light is shining in a certain place, the law, the old covenant, and the sacrificial system only was there and was meant to be temporary to show you where the light was coming from. Thus, this very repetition of sacrifices and work done on the Day of Atonement, as written here, every year the priests are making these sacrifices, continually making these sacrifices, over and over again. More bulls, more sheep, more animals killed, more blood shed, the altar covered in blood, the Holy of Holies, all of that that we've talked about, 
over and over and over because that was the precursor and the shadow for the ultimate payment to come. But it is but a shadow. The repetition of these sacrifices done brought glory to God. But they also revealed something. By having to do the sacrifices over and over and over again, it revealed that the Old Testament model was temporal and weak. It wasn't strong enough. It wasn't enough. No one owns that many cattle and, and rams and, and sheep. I mean, it's just with this sin in this world. I like what John Phillips said in his commentary in the book of Hebrews. I don't know if you know John. John's written a lot of, he preached here many years ago, renowned scholar. He says this, the shadow of a key cannot unlock a prison door. The shadow of a meal cannot satisfy a hungry man. And the shadow of Calvary cannot take away sin. And that's what the Old Testament law is, a shadow of the cross, of the sacrifice. So we need more. So let's look at the substance. So there's the shadow. Let's look at the substance. There's a buildup here in this chapter that comes next, next week or in a couple weeks as we look at chapter 11. I'm going to give you a, just a jump ahead to chapter 11, verse 1 in Hebrews. We're not sitting in that chapter today. That's a great, we call it the hall of faith, right? You get all these faith statements here. But that first verse says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I remember learning it as a kid in the, I think it was the King James Version, where it didn't say assurance, it said faith is the substance of things hoped for, the substance. And I just, I like the word substance in that regard, but, well, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, but let's talk about substance. If the Old Testament law is a shadow, then what is the substance? Well, I did some deep study on this and went to dictionary.com. And dictionary.com says, substance is that of which a thing consists, either physical or material. I think most of us understand it. So while a shadow is empty and just reveals something, though incomplete, that might be there with the light shining through it, the thing it is revealing is the thing, right? So if you, like right now, there's a shadow of this, this pulpit on the stage right here. So here's the shadow right here based on the fact these lights are hitting it the way it is. But this right here is simply a shadow. This isn't some, you know, uh, Peter Pan dance move or something. This is, a rea this is just a shadow. It's not moving on its own. And it isn't, it's not something I can touch or grasp. And as I move, I have a shadow that goes with me depending on where the light is. It's simply not something of substance. This is elementary school science here. I get this. It's not too far-fetched for us to grasp, but when you are holding on to your traditions or your preconceived ideas or that which you believe to be all there is and all that is most valuable in your life, you may be actually sacrificing the real deal that God has for you for simply a crude copy. It's kind of like saying, I'd rather have a cubic zirconia ring rather than an authentic diamond. You know, I'd rather have a, a costume jewelry rather than the real thing. One is authentic and the other is created to look like the real deal. My dad, when he was in the Air Force, there was a year he was stationed in Pusan, South Korea. While he was working as a, they were rebuilding the hospital there at the Army base and he was involved in that, even as a, in his role in the Air Force, he was there for a year and, uh, and about twice the, during, during his time of being gone, he would ship back some boxes of stuff. Now, any of you, especially in the military, that have traveled overseas and been to some of the marketplaces, I mean, we've done this in Israel on our trips. I remember going to Israel, going to the marketplace, and all these quote-unquote authentic things. I still regret not buying the New York Sankey's baseball cap because you just can't find a New York Sankey's baseball cap anywhere. But they had a Sankey's cap, and it was pretty, it was pretty sweet. It, looked, it, was, it was worth every 
shekel, they were all asking for it, but I didn't buy it. But my dad sent back uh, like a box full of, I had some Fila, these were back when these were really nice, Fila sneakers and a bunch of polo shirts from Ralph Lauren. It was really like Rocky Lauren, it wasn't actually Ralph, it was the other, his brother, I guess, because the polo shirts and the, and the Reeboks, I mean, this is back in the 80s, it's a long time ago. So all these things were coming in and they were nice, they were good, but, but it was very clear that uh, these weren't the real deal. Like the little polo guys falling off the horse. It's not the real deal. But it was only like two bucks. So, you know, he's buying, and, and, and you know, it's, it's funny. I laughed about it. We laughed about it because, hey, why not? Just wear it, and it'll fall apart on you and throw it away. But you wouldn't want that if you had the opportunity to have the real deal. It was just a copy, and not even a good copy. In faith, the Lord set up a system that previewed something better to come. The trailer, yeah. Sometimes when you go to the movies now, I've been to a movie in a long time, but you know, sometimes the trailers are better than the feature, right? And sometimes the trailer, you know, they call them trailers, I think, because they used to come after the movies, now they're previews, they're before the movies, that always confuses me, but they show these little snippets of films coming out. Coming attractions, right, you see that? And, and now, you know, if there's a film coming out and they know it's gonna lose money, they put every single best scene and reveal every secret in the trailer. So you've seen the entire movie in two and a half minutes. And um, you see these trailers and sometimes, you know, I know people that are, are you content with just seeing the trailer or do you wanna see the full film? If it's a blockbuster feature film, the, the two minute version is not enough. And so when it comes to faith, when it comes to Christ, these Hebrew Christians are struggling with this reality that, that in a sense, um, they're settling, they would wanna settle for the Old Testament law rather than, than hold on to that which God has given them. They would settle for the trailer to be enough. See, the Lord set up that which was a preview of that which was to come. The trailer showed highlights, but the real feature was Jesus Christ, not just snippets of a story. The priceless gems are found in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 verse four says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then why have all the sacrifices for the blood of bull and goats? Because the wages of sin is death and somebody has to die. And the ultimate sacrifice will come. And when the ultimate sacrifice comes, he's paying the penalty for all the sins of humanity from, from the Garden of Eden till the last day. And that's Jesus Christ, our priest, our king, our lamb, our sacrifice. Why would you trade the priceless for the plastic? Why abandon Jesus for a model that was never designed to be the final model, the final edition? That the Old Testament law was designed to reveal him but not be him. This is the question the Hebrew Christians have to answer. Why slide back into a system that will never fully work when the one that does work, that is real, that is complete, that has substance and is not just a shadow, is freely offered and available? Why? You see, Christ is that sacrifice that became final. There are no altars here. I know we call, I, I've been in, you know, we go, hey, come to the altar and pray. Well, these are really just steps, if you want to call them what they are. We've not killed an animal and put the blood on these. We call them an altar, but in, in a sense, it's steps to a stage. There's really not an altar here with blood-stained corners. There are no animals tied up out front for you to purchase on your way to church today so that you can bring them in and let us sacrifice them. 
There's no bloody vestment or clothing for me to wear as I am not your priest, and you don't need a human priest, for Christ himself is our priest. I hope you see the futility in this, for to come to Christ and surrender and to receive his sacrifice as one of substance, to fall down in worship realizing how great a gift of sacrifice has been made, that is, that's what the Hebrews were being called to. And it's what we have all been drawn to by the Spirit of God. Christ has already done the work. We're such a, we just have to be reminded of this. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? You know, Christians, I need to do more. I need to do another Bible study. I need to join another class. I need to do this. We need to have another ministry for this, that, and the other. And all that stuff is great. But, but sometimes in our busyness of doing, we, we, we lose the blessing of just being. God did not save you because you do things really well. But he offered salvation because you are made in his image and his deep love for you makes that available. Christ did the work. He did the heavy lifting. He paid the price. Jesus came to do what only he could do, and he did it fully and completely. Look at verse 9. It says he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So through Jesus Christ... And because of Jesus Christ and due to the blood that he has shed on the cross for you and for me and all of humanity, you can be, or already have been if you're a Christian, sanctified and purified and rescued. So what the bull and the goat and the sheep and all those could never do, Jesus did. And by the way, let's just not blame it on the animals. What you can't do for yourself, Jesus did for you. Then, after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, hung around on the planet for a while and gave last instructions and then ascended up to heaven according to the scriptures, he sat down. So let's look at the seat. Chapter 10, 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Can you picture this? Old Testament priest, Old Testament priest. Animals coming in daily. We're sacrificing animals, sacrificing animals. Daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Seems like an exercise in futility. It's actually just a precursor to the final, final sacrifice. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, himself on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So we, we, we didn't put the model on the screen. We didn't bring it out and kind of walk through it. But you, we talked about the tent, the tabernacle, right? And those, the Holy of Holies and what was in the Holy of Holies and the basin and this, that, and the other. We talked about the temple set up a little bit. And, and if you weren't hearing that and, that, and if you were here and you didn't even listen to that point, that's fine. Just Google it. You can find there are so many Christians that have spent so many hours reconstructing all these things for you. You don't have to do it. But there is an element within the temple and the tabernacle not there. There are no chairs. Just think about that. There's no chairs. There's nowhere for the priest to sit down. Not, not, not descriptively like that. And why is that? Because the work of the priest is never done. He had to stand to do the job. There's always a sacrifice to offer. There's always, I mean, some of you, I mean, we're, we're many, not all of you, many of you are Christians. You came to church. It's the right thing to do. We sang worship songs. We praise Jesus. We love Jesus. But even in our own minds, some of us in the room who are redeemed and going to heaven, if we were to die today, have sinned since the time we came into this room. We've already done it. Just by thoughts. Just by frustrations. Some of your faces reveal that you're not happy. 
There's nobody in here that's happy at everything. Some people aren't happy unless they're angry. You know, we're going to, you know, some of you had communion at home with a lemon and then you came to church, right? That's what happens. I'm that way. I mean, some days I'm like, oh gosh, I got to go to church today. Tell my wife, I don't want to go to church today. She goes, you're the pastor. <laughs> All right, I'll go to church. It just, because we're human. And so when you say, well, why didn't the priests ever have to get to sit down? Because we're human. And the perpetual sacrifices had to keep being made. But Jesus, in his, in his exact fulfillment as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, as stated in Psalm 110, sat down. Look at that Old Testament song. 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's what's quoted in verse 13. Thus the work of our Savior was made complete at the cross and through the resurrection. And as Lewis Evans, who has written a number of commentaries, has said, he says, the apostle's son, Messiah, who has become the priest after the order of Melchizedek, has offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, remitting all the sins of humanity forever. Indeed, it is is finished. Jesus has done the work and he sat down. The question for you and for me and for those that maybe have never surrendered their lives to Christ today is, have you surrendered to the, to the Lord that we speak of today, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, believing he paid your bill and there's no more for him to do and he sat down until the Father sends him. That's a different story, but it's part of the story. And the reason he sat down is because he did everything that needed to be done. See, some of us in our Puritan work ethic keep thinking we need to do more stuff for God. Well, yeah, we, James, I've read James, there are works that we do. But accumulating more good works does not make you get you into heaven. That may be a shadow of the key into that gate, but it is not the key to the gate. It is Christ who redeems us and changes us. And I pray that for those that have never surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, that today you will. Not out of coercion, not out of guilt, not out of some emotional drawing, but out of the Spirit of God revealing to you this very morning that when the church that you've chosen to stand together and sing together with says, just as I am, you start thinking about you, just as I am. Broken, messed up, sinful, incomplete, never seemingly enough, just as I am, reveals to me that of all the things I am not, but just as I am not, the great I am has done all the work and has opened the door wide and has said, come home, come home. Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you do. We thank you for the gospel declared in the book of Leviticus. We thank you for the gospel declared in the Old Testament songbook known as Psalms. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel declared in a New Testament letter titled Hebrews. 
We thank you, Father, that the gospel is not just the title intro for first four books of the New Testament, but is a declarative reality of the good news that is Jesus Christ, who is your son, our redeemer, our prophet, our priest, our king, our sacrifice, and has been made revealed and clear from the first in the beginning to the amen at the end of the book, or books. And because of who Jesus is and the work he has done, and all that he came intently to do for your glory and our good, we have opportunity today to come to know you, to surrender to you, not to negotiate or not to compromise, but to surrender fully. White flag in hand, we are yours. For the non-believers or the non-Christians in the room that are just in here because a friend invited them, Lord, thank you for a friend who cares enough even if they didn't know that they were inviting them because they cared enough. Maybe they just didn't want to sit alone today. But Holy Spirit, you use them to invite someone. And so there's someone here, maybe hearing the gospel for the very first time, recognizing even now that Jesus has done all that must be done so that they may have life. And for the Christian that may have been a believer or may be a believer for years or decades, Lord, rejuvenate within us the joy that is only found in you and remind us of, of who you are. Lead us to repentance if sin has overwhelmed us. Forgive us for just rededicating ourselves all the time apart from repentance. Help us to turn from sin and turn to you and live faithfully in that way, just as we are, but not staying the way we are. It is in Jesus' name.